next week. If you do not have a copy of God's Word, uh, let me invite you to uh, lift your hand. We've got extras in the back and some members walking down the aisles now with them. If you'd like to look on as uh, I preach this morning, we'll be in Mark chapter 9, and we will begin reading in verse 42, and we'll read all the way through verse 50 this morning. And as you turn there, I feel the need to further provide a disclaimer, perhaps just a warning over the text that we're looking at this morning. If you're new to St. Rose Community Church, um, you might not know that our, our weekly practice here at St. Rose Community Church is to submit ourselves under the Word of God, one verse at a time, one paragraph at a time, through whole books of the Bible. So unlike maybe some other churches you've been a part of that have done you know, four to six week series on topics that the, gener- that the pastor sort of generates to lead the congregation through. Uh, we've chosen to, on Sunday mornings, take whole books of the Bible and then progress through them one passage at a time. And we've done that for several reasons. Um, one of the reasons we've done that is so that we, we're not tempted to skip over particular portions of the scripture that God has inspired that we're uncomfortable with. I mean, there's certain passages of scriptures that'll just preach. I mean, they're good passages. You get lots of amens and hallelujahs and praise the Lord, and the pastor can just, just light it up and just preach it, and it's good and it's fun. There's other passages of Scripture that are hard to understand, but they're inspired by God, and we need to work to understand. There's other passages of Scripture that are easy to understand, but they're just hard to grasp, <laughs> and that's what we turn to this morning, a passage of Scripture that it's not that it's hard to understand. It's hard to accept. It's hard to embrace. And so another reason that we progress through books of the Bible one passage at a time is that we as a congregation, we as a people, we want to embody a spirit of humility that comes to what God says, no matter what it says, and we want to submit ourselves under it. The the, the question is not whether we want to believe it. The question is, is not whether we want to hear it. The question is, did God Almighty, who created the sun, stars, and moon, did he say this or not? And if he did... What does it mean for me? And what does it mean for my life? We want to be a congregation that is formed, informed by and led by God's word about himself and not our opinions of what he should be like and what he should do. And we know ourselves. We know that we don't naturally want to hear all that God has to say. I mean, this starts as early as four years old. My son has a hearing problem. Y'all pray for him. There are things that he just can't hear for some reason. Now, if I were to offer him some chocolate, he hears immediately, and a miracle has taken place. He's born wanting to hear certain things and not wanting to hear other things. And that doesn't stop when you turn five. That continues on into 85. By our nature... We want to hear what we want to hear, and we avoid what we don't want to hear. So preaching through text of the Bible helps us to hear things and submit to things perhaps that we don't want to hear. And this morning, in this text, if we ignore this text and this doctrine, the consequences of that are eternal. 
if we ignore this text and this doctrine, Christianity doesn't even make sense. The gospel doesn't even make sense. This morning, we find clearly taught the reality of hell. A teaching absolutely paramount to our understanding of the gospel. And if we ignore this, this doctrine of both sin and how serious it is, and hell and how real it is, we will let our friends and our family perish forever. We will not be thankful for our own salvation if we have it at all. We will treat sin lightly as something to be played with, and we will self-destruct and will let the people that we love most self-destruct. We are tempted to diminish, overlook, underplay sin and hell at the expense of ourselves, at the expense of the people we love. And so let's read words from God in the flesh who taught on this reality very clearly. Mark chapter 9, verse 42. Let's read and then we'll pray for understanding. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him If a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. (laughs) It's better for you to enter enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt's good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. All right, let's, let's pray that God would, would guide us this morning. Father, uh, there is so much to say, so much that could be said. And Father, we ask that, Father, that you would help us to understand, to believe. We pray that for a spirit of humility. We pray for a right spirit of brokenness, of grace and truth. As we think about these things, and ultimately we pray that we would believe these things with true belief, with belief that that stirs us to act differently and to prioritize differently, God. I just pray this morning um, that you would move me out of the way and that this moment would be a miracle of your word clearly explained and then heard and applied. So, Father, we, we pray that you would speak to us now by your grace and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So as I said, we've been working through the Gospel of Mark passage by passage uh, ever since Easter of uh, last year with a little bit of an interruption called Hurricane Ida. But, but since Easter, we've been working through the Gospel of Mark. And last week, we looked at a passage. Uh, and, and remember, we always have to read things in context. You have to ask, like, okay, why is Mark including this story after this other story? And so last Sunday... We studied a conversation between John and Jesus, 
And in that conversation, John comes to Jesus and, and tells Jesus, hey, Jesus, we saw someone else serving you. We saw someone else casting out demonic spirits in your name, and don't worry, we stopped them. And we find that John's motivations in this moment where he tried to stop somebody else from serving Jesus, we find that John's motivations weren't exactly pure. Because of pride, he likely left this individual whom he came and stopped. I mean, just imagine with me, you're an individual, you've, maybe you've been healed by Jesus, you've heard Jesus' teachings, you believe he's the Messiah, the Savior, and, and you come in contact with, with an evil spirit, and, and so you, in the name of Jesus, you try to confront that, and then one of Jesus' 12 disciples comes up to you and says, hey, that's not for you to do, that's for us to do. You're a little confused, right? You're, you're, thinking, you're thinking, I thought I was doing right, I was, thought I was serving this Jesus, John's decision to confront this man certainly had ripple effects in this man's own life. Like, oh, goodness gracious, if one of the 12 is stopping me, then I must be in the wrong or doing the wrong thing. Now, Jesus, obviously, last week confronted John, corrected John, said, hey, if he's in the name of Jesus, serving Jesus, he's on our team. This is not about you, John. It's not about the disciples being unique and awesome and wonderful. This is about a kingdom which is much bigger than you, John. And I'm working in people's lives you don't even know. And so John stands corrected. So it's unclear whether Mark makes a thematic jump here to record a related teaching of Jesus or whether this is the same moment of teaching. But regardless, there's a connection to be seen between what this conversation with John and this next verse in verse 42. The connection is clear, and this is the connection. Sinning in such a way that causes others to sin or stumble is a very serious thing. So once you look at verse 42, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Truth number one, causing someone else's sin is a serious offense. Now, Jesus, thus far in the story, has been absolutely gracious and forgiving to all who come to him in faith. And I mean, he's had some nasty sinners come to him, right? tax collectors and liars and, and, and adulterers and all types of things. I mean, Jesus has had some of the worst of sinners come to him in faith, and he's worked in their lives and forgiven them. But that doesn't mean that Jesus is indifferent or, or tolerant to sin. Just because he's offered forgiveness to sinners doesn't mean that Jesus is okay with sin. The language he uses in this section is meant to be shocking, Right? I, I'm afraid that all of us have kind of a, a sissified view of Jesus with like long flowing golden hair and blue eyes and he's white, right, for so many, or he's, or he's a certain way of seeing, and you're like, no, Jesus was a Middle Eastern man, rough around the edges, was a carpenter, and he spoke hard things. He spoke difficult things. Jesus uses language here in such a way to shock your system. A millstone is a massive wheel-like boulder used to crush grain so heavy 
that no, they would take a burden-bearing animal like a strong donkey to roll it, and they would use it to crush out the grain, to have a millstone hung around your neck. Don't think small rock, that you got it like a chance to like swim. Think massive boulders so that when you're thrown into the sea, it would mean a very quick trip to the bottom of the ocean. Listen to how one commentator puts it. To be the cause of another spiritual shipwreck is so serious an offense that a quick drowning would be preferable to the fate it deserves. Jesus' words here are meant to shock you into self-analysis. How could I be the one? It's such a frightening reality that it forces you to ask a question and say, how might I be the one he's speaking about here? That could cause someone else to stumble or sin against a holy, righteous God. How could our actions cause someone else to stumble and falter spiritually? What would this look like in my life? Now, the text doesn't get into specifics, but the applications are plentiful here. How could we be guilty of such an accusation? Well, allow me to provide a few examples of what this might look like. We're guilty of this when we provoke others to sin with us. By provoke, I mean actually invite others to sin along with you. You provoke others to sin every time you, you encourage someone else to join you because sin loves company. Sin loves company because it's nice to compare yourself with the other sinner rather than to compare yourself with the standard of God. And so company normalizes your behavior, makes it not as difficult or rigid or alarming because you're just fitting in like a fish in water who doesn't know they're wet. If everyone else is doing it, this must not be wrong. You provoke others to sin and I apologize for the bluntness, but goodness, you, you provoke others to sin every time you engage in sexual activity outside of marriage. Young man or young woman, I mean, when you seduce someone to participate with you in sexual acts with a significant other outside of marriage, outside of the will of God, you are not expressing love for that person. You are expressing hatred of them. You're showing them that you care more about the physical fix and selfish pleasure than you care about their soul and their spiritual condition before a holy God. Young man, looking at pornography at night, that is not an isolated, independent moment. There's real people on the other side of that screen whom your participation in with that act is supporting something that horrendously destroys their soul. We provoke others to sin when we are impatient and quarrelsome in, in a way that invites others to join in us with, in, in the fight. Husband and wives, you, you know what this is like. You say things hoping to provoke a response from the other person so that you can be justified to then say all the things you wanted to say. <laughs> you're, you're, it's almost like you're tempting them with a carrot to be sinful so that you can act as sinful as you would like to act. And be justified in it. I don't say that from experience at all. 
don't have that temptation. Sin loves company. But not only are we guilty of this when we provoke others to sin with us, we're guilty of this when we set the example with our own sin. Whether you like it or not, if you claim to be a Christian, you are a representative of all that that title stands for. Those around you who are closest to you and even those who are only observing you from a distance are making judgments about what they believe about Jesus and his worthiness by how you value him with your life decisions. Now, you may not like this because you want to believe yourself to be totally independent. You may, want, you may say things like, I don't care about what other people think of me. You may want to believe that your decisions don't have consequences, but that's a lie. Your actions affect those around you either positively or negatively. Whether you want to be or not, the fact that you're a baptized believer in Jesus makes you a representative of Jesus and his church. You don't get the choice of whether, whether you want to represent that. You are. The question is whether you're a good representation or a bad representation. And people will either plunge themselves into further self-destruction because of your example, or they'll be drawn into the goodness of Jesus because of your example. The closeness of your walk with Jesus or lack thereof will affect more people than just you this week. No one exists in a vacuum. And according to Jesus, a quick drowning would be better than to lead someone away from Jesus rather than toward Jesus. We are guilty of this when we provoke others to sin. We're guilty of this when we set an example with our own sin. Finally, one more example before we move on. We're guilty of this when we ignore or even celebrate someone's sin. Now, that's a hard one. Because the society we live in is shaping our view of morality, whether we want to admit it or not. The chief moral code of America right now is tolerance, no matter the cost. In fact, the culture around us no longer just demands Christians to be tolerant. They demand our celebration of self-destructive behavior. The unforgivable sin in our culture is to actually believe that a particular action is sin. And it's seen as an unloving thing to disagree with someone else's decision to destroy themselves. Now this is the case with all decisions, all relationships, but it's especially the case with our loved ones who are pursuing sexual sin. I mean, no matter what the culture around you says, it is not hatred to warn someone of something that you believe is legitimately destroying them. It is not hatred to believe with your whole heart and to warn someone that the drug addiction is destroying their life. No matter how hard that conversation is. It's not hatred to believe and warn someone that their abandonment of the local church is destroying them. 
that the, uh, the sin of homosexuality is actually contrary to God's design and has real consequences both in this life and in the next. It is not hatred to talk about those things in love. What is hatred is to look the other way or even celebrate the decision of, of loved ones who are plunging themselves into things God Almighty avidly warns against. It is hatred to look the other way while my son plays in the road with traffic. It is not hatred to do everything I can to get him out of the road. Don't buy the lie that says the best way to love someone is to celebrate the way that they're destroying their lives. Christians, listen, this is going to be the hardest thing over the next 50 years. There is a way to lovingly and respectfully and consistently be present in someone's life while maintaining a firm, clear conviction that their sins separate them from God. And it is spiritually dangerous to think otherwise. Sin is not something to be played with. Look at verse 43, and let's read the text again. Verse 43, and if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands and go to hell the unquenchable fire. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell. Where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. There are several more truths here to deduce. Truth number two is this. Hell is real. <laughs> I mean, Jesus talks about this with, with, with crystal clarity and no apology. Do you believe that simple statement? Everything about our culture wants to erase this doctrine from Christianity. We want to ignore it. We, we are... And, and, and if you're a visitor here, we are not a church that preaches hellfire and brimstone every week to try to scare people into making some kind of decision. That is not who we are. We're preaching the Bible through. But these are the words of Jesus. And he presents this picture of hell, which is frightening. <laughs> so I, I'm not, I don't use scare tactics here at all. But this is real. These are the clear words of Jesus, and J Jesus' description of hell is undeniably scary, even to the word he uses in the Greek. The Greek word is Gehenna, and it's representative of a real place in Jerusalem that they would have recognized. Gehenna was a valley to the southwest of Jerusalem where previously in Israel's history, evil kings had used it as a site for human sacrifice. Now, in 2 Kings... King Josiah outlawed the human sacrifices, and he turned the valley into a trash dump for the city of Jerusalem where trash could be dumped and burned. So here's the picture Jesus is putting before him by using this word Gehenna, a massive valley with the bones of humans with trash piled on top continuously burning. Now, some people would like to say, oh, well, all that is just symbolic, Sure, if it's symbolic, what's it symbolic of? 
It's not symbolic of a good thing or a happy thing or a nice thing where all the sinners in the world are going to get together and have a giant party with Satan and his demons. That is not what this is symbolic of. Three things become very clear from Jesus' description of hell here. It's terrible, it's eternal, and it is the consequence for sin. It's a place where the fire is not quenched. In other words, it's a place of perpetual burning. It's, a, it's apparently a place where people will be thrown. Even as I wrote that sentence at the Honeydew Cafe this week on Tuesday, I wrote it fighting tears back. It's a reality I don't want to accept. But I cannot define truth but I, by what I want to be true. There are a lot of things in this world that I do not want to be true, but my own desire for something to be false doesn't make it false. This thing's driving me crazy. I don't know if that's going to help. Can you give me a handheld? Yeah. Let me just get done with that. I'll take that. Praise the Lord. That's driving me nuts. I don't know what's wrong with that. It would be today. We're talking about hell. Something distracting come up. The God of the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, is very clearly a holy, righteous, perfect God who demands obedience, faith, and allegiance to him alone as creator of the universe. You cannot accept the God of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation and reject this because it doesn't fit with the way you see God. This fits with the way that you see God from Genesis to Revelation. The flood of Noah was not in his books portray with happy animals and a rainbow at the end and joy. The flood of Noah was a moment where humanity received just judgment for rebelling against a holy God. The story of the Bible is that God Almighty, the Eternal One, created every one of the billions of atoms of matter which make up the fullness of the universe. He creates humanity to be a special people to enjoy his creation and praise him forever. His humanity then turns on him, rebels against him, and desires to take his throne. Even though God warned that there would be unimaginable consequences at the time, God hates sin, and he warned that there would be a death to follow sin, and they had no framework to even know what that was, but just that it was bad. And God promises to punish sin eternally in a place that is only described throughout the entire New Testament as a place of unquenchable fire, never-ending torment, total darkness. And the message of the Bible is that that's what sinners deserve for sinning against the one who created them. But that God made a way of salvation. There is one message of good news, and it's the very thing Jesus came for 
It's the very reason why the gospel of Mark exists. It's why we're in this portion of the gospel of Mark where three times Jesus says, I'm going to the cross to die. Jesus was born in a manger, lived a perfect life, pursued the cross of crucifixion for this reason, to take on himself all that an eternal hell had to offer for those who turned against God. This doctrine of hell is the very thing Jesus came for to take on himself in fullness the wrath of God so that the people whom God loves, that they would turn and not receive it themselves. I mean, in our community groups, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 9 says this, For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us. Who died for us. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 9 says this, We see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. He drinks the full cup of God's wrath for sin, so sinners like you and me would not have to pay the price for our own sin. This is the essence of the message of Christianity. If hell is not really what our sin deserves, the cross was not necessary. And the gospel message is not that good. Hell is real. It's a rightful and just punishment for rebellion against eternal God. It's why Jesus came as God in the flesh to take the punishment on himself for our sake. You take hell out of Christianity, then you take the reason out of celebrating the cross at all. The reason why that moment was so dark and the ground shook and the sky went black was that somehow beyond our imaginations, Jesus, in love for you, took all that you deserve. And those who choose to pursue life of sin, rather than following this Jesus who died for them, they choose hell forever. And Jesus says with crystal clarity that such a decision is utterly foolish. Let's read it one more time. Verse 43. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. <laughs> it's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye that, than with two eyes to be thrown into hell. Do you hear the repetition? Truth number three is this, sin isn't worth it. I mean, do, do you understand what Jesus is saying? Jesus is not advocating for self-mutilation as a mean for us to be sanctified here. No one heard his teaching in this moment and thought that the teaching was to literally cut off your hands and literally cut off your feet and literally pluck out your eyes every time that you were tempted. If that were the case, the disciples would have had a really hard time getting the gospel to the ends of the earth because they all would have had no feet, no hands, and no eyes. That's not the point. The point is that any sin which you cling to rather than submitting to and following Jesus is outrageously not worth it. <laughs> like it is, it is crazily not worth it. I mean, it, it, it would be better to pluck out the eye than to continue clinging to that rather than follow Jesus. It would be better to amputate the leg and be lame 
than to choose sin over Christ. Better to pluck out the eye than to choose sin over Christ. Sin, therefore, according to Jesus, is not a laughing matter. It's not something to be ignored or taken lightly. It's not something to be played with, and it lies to you. It tells you that it leads to life and life more abundantly, but it leads to death and death eternally. It's a liar, a deceiver, and a destroyer, and has been from the beginning, and as such, it should be warred against. With all your energy and attention, there is application here both for the non-Christian and the Christian to the non-Christian in the room. If there's some sort of lifestyle or some sort of independence or some sort of thing you're clinging to rather than turning to Jesus, the plea is simple in this text. Let go of it. Do whatever it takes to let go of it. It's not worth it. Run from it like it's a murderer because it is. It's lying to you. I don't know what it is. It could be a relationship, money, drugs, your own stinking pride or selfishness to not admit that you were wrong. It's not leading you to life. Let it go. Are you really going to go to hell because you're afraid of what others will think if you go all in with Jesus? There is a better way, and the repetition is clear. Verse 43, it's better for you to enter life. Verse 44, it's better for you to enter life. Verse 47, it's better for you to enter the kingdom of God. God is not a cosmic fun sucker trying to get you to pursue life where there is no joy. He is not keeping things from you which you think are wonderful. Just like my, my child who, who wants to play with the circular saw outside and I keep that from her though she doesn't understand. She thinks I'm ruining her fun but I am loving her the best way I can love her. God is love. God is grace. He is forgiveness. He's the fountain from which every good thing flows, and he clearly urges you to turn away from sin and toward Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins and to bring you new life, which extends into eternity. Salvation in this text. It's not teaching that it's based on performance, based on how much you can stop sinning, but it is based on your surrender of faith. See, saving faith is not simply acknowledging intellectually that there's a historical person who lived, died, and rose again. Saving faith is a belief that Jesus is both Savior and Lord and that his way is better. Saving faith is a faith that is only recognized in a person who fights their sin and follows Jesus. There's application here for the Christian this morning. Do you fight your sin? Or are you at home with it? Do you see your sin the same way Jesus describes sin here in this text? Do you see sin, your sin, as the most important problem in your life? Or do you see everybody else's sin as the most important problem of your life? I think a lot of times we see everybody else's sin as the biggest problem in our lives. You see your wife's sin as the biggest problem. Your husband's sin is your biggest problem. Your children's sin is the biggest problem. Your coworker's sin is the biggest problem. Your boss's sin as the bigger, biggest problem. It's our temptation to read this text and automatically assume this is for somebody else. <laughs> Another thing we assume about this text is that it's talking about sexual sin. And I, and I commented on that earlier because it definitely includes that. It's, I mean, 
that type of sin destroys the soul more than we even recognize. But, but this text never actually mentions sexual sin. In fact, sexual sin hasn't even really been mentioned in the whole gospel of Mark thus far. In fact, at this point in the story, we read this story and we automatically think the certain types of sins. But you know what sins have been explicitly taught against in the gospel so far? Hypocrisy, pride, selfishness, faithlessness, and apathy toward others. Do you wage war against these less tangible sins with the same intensity that Jesus demands in this text? Do not deceive yourself this morning. Do not deceive yourself into thinking that if you're not an adulterer, liar, or murderer, you don't really have that much to wage war against this morning. Jesus hasn't mentioned any of those things thus far. He's given more attention to the sins of the heart that are more generally accepted and not as easily seen. In fact, the only thing he explicitly mentions in the paragraph later is the pursuit of unity among Christian brothers and sisters. Christians, we are to see sin differently and respond to it differently. We are to be different than those who tamper with sin. Christian community is supposed to be different. The the, the text takes a strange transition in verse 49. I want you to look at verse 49. Everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Truth number four, and this is kind of a big one, you're like, okay, how in the world do you get this from this? Truth number four is this, salvation is a surrender to sanctification that displays the glory of God. Verse 49 transitions to a different analogy. Until now, fire has only been in reference to hell's unquenchable fire uh, for those who choose to sin rather than Jesus. But now Mark turns to quote the words of Jesus that describe the Christian pursuit of Jesus as a whole sacrifice to the Lord. Salt and fire were requirements in the Old Testament for what was called the whole burnt offering to the Lord. It's when you bring all of it to the Lord and it all goes to him. The offering was a gift totally consumed and given to the Lord. And here Mark points to the case of every true follower of Jesus, that they will follow Jesus with wholeness and fullness of dedication, giving themselves salted with fire as a sacrifice to their Lord. We will all be tried and tested and purified as we give ourselves fully to Jesus, and that purifying will be recognizable. It will be like salt which flavors and preserves that which it touches. I think what you have to do in verse 50, you have to read verse 50 and understand it as the opposite of verse 42, right? So verse 42 was about affecting others negatively, right? Verse 42, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin. Verse 50 is about affecting those you come in contact with positively. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourself. And then here's the only command in this, in this, in this section about what you should actually do with all this, be at peace with one another. Be at shalom, be at harmony with one another. Our sanctification will be like salt which adds flavor and peace to community life. This isn't just about avoiding bad things. This is about living in such a way that's so different 
we bring flavor to the community. Peace. Something different, something that you can taste in the conversations that you have. We are not to be people who cause others to sin. We're to be salty with the flavor of our Savior that others will find forgiveness and peace in our communities of faith. See, it's not sure whether Mark is just sort of merging two teachings together here. He could be taking from a teaching that is clearly taught in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, where Jesus says, You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but they put it on a stand. It gives light to the whole house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. believe the The language of verse 49 and 50 is Mark saying that Christians are not just a voider of bad things. They have a mission to surrender their lives to Jesus and to invite others into a community that's totally different than they've ever experienced. So what do we do with all this? What should the doctrine of sin and hell provoke in us? How should we respond as St. Rose Community Church. Let me give you three takeaways. Number one, fight sin for what it is. Fight sin for what it is. We all want to pretend that it's not that big of a problem. We fight our sin in a kind of tolerant, lazy way. We fight our sin like it's a funny, bad habit, like biting our fingernails that we're trying to stop, but it's really not that big a deal. But Jesus doesn't talk like that. The Bible doesn't talk like that. It uses wartime language. It describes sin as a slave master that kills you, not a bad habit that's a little annoying. Fight sin for what it is. It is a cancer that kills from the inside out. Number two, cherish the cross. To be a Christian, you must believe, this is important, to be a Christian, you must believe that you deserve hell, but that God loved you so much that he took the punishment on himself at the cross. That truth should create in you joy. It should humble you. It should increase your thanksgiving. It should fuel your worship. It should be the central of everything you are, everything you do. A real, true grasp of the severity and the eternity of hell, perpetual burning, everlasting torment, incomparable darkness, all of that should make these words sweeter. There is therefore now no condemnation. For those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh couldn't do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Hell makes the gospel sweeter to those who have found salvation in Jesus. And number three. Share the message of the cross. 
your loved ones, the most important thing for your loved ones is not that they like you and that they are satisfied with every conversation you have with them. Your loved one's greatest need is not to simply be better or to stop sinning so much. They do not need you to approve of their every decision. They need forgiveness only found at the cross of Christ. They need to understand it and bank their lives on it. Let me just urge you, stop sharing the news of a general God who generally loves them as long as they aren't that bad. That is a crossless, Christless message that doesn't save anyone at all. It only provides a false assurance that leads to a rude eternal awakening of how bad they needed the specifics of the gospel message, which teach the necessity of a cross that they have to trust in. We are go- we're, this morning, we're going to try to respond to this message, and we're going to go to two songs this morning. And during that time, I want you to write down or to type in your phone or to think of the people in your life who so desperately need the life eternal that's described in this text. The life that would be better for them. The kingdom of God that would be better for them. I want you to think of the names God has brought into your life. And we're going to have a time after we sing two songs together responding. We're going to have a time of corporate prayer where we pray for those names. And we plead that God would help us to be like salt and light that flavors and influences those relationships toward the salvation found in Jesus, not away from. So let's, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask that he would help us to believe. Father, we pray just like the man prayed in Mark chapter 9, verse 24. I believe, help my unbelief. Father, we pray that you would help me to press eternal things into our minds so that we could be a people who fight sin for what it is, cherish the cross, and share the message of the cross with boldness and clarity. Help us to respond now by your grace and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.